South Carolina. It may be the smallest state in the South, but it's played a giant role in the history of the nation. It was here where European settlers and African slaves turned marshes into fortunes of rice, where the first shots of the Civil War were fired, and where new industry has transformed a small northern town into the Detroit of the South. Aerial South Carolina journeys across landmarks of the Revolutionary War through a vast cypress swamp that once was the refuge of a famous American freedom fighter and down the colorful streets of what may be the most elegant city in the nation to explore the true spirit and rich history of the South. From a stunning coastline where hurricanes strike with deadly force to a little known island that turns new recruits into America's Marines. This is South Carolina. of South Carolina is one of the most loved on the eastern seaboard. But it wasn't always this way. In 1562, 27 French sailors were dropped off here with orders to start a colony. But life was difficult and food supplies scarce. So the settlers attempted to flee back to France on a homemade ship. It was a horrific journey on which many of the men perished and others resorted to cannibalism to survive. The British had more success. In 1670, England's King Charles II gifted the land of the Carolinas to eight of his noblemen. Soon, a group of English settlers arrived on a storm-tossed ship named Carolina to start a colony here. They named their first settlement Charlestown after their king. Writer Pat Conroy has said that Charleston is a feast for the human eye, but also a dark city with secrets as powerful and beguiling as its elegance. Charleston may be an elegant city today, but it hasn't always been. In 1923, while working on the Broadway show Runnin' Wild, Composer and pianist James P. Johnson made Charleston a household name around the world. The Charleston was one of the definitive dance tunes of the 1920s. But at the time, the city was already showing signs of its age. Many 18th century buildings, including these, which stood in the heart of Charleston's former commercial district, were falling into disrepair. After the Civil War, plantation profits plummeted, 
and many wealthy landowners had a hard time maintaining their properties. As a local saying goes, the owners became too poor to paint, but too proud to whitewash. In the 1930s, a preservationist named Dorothy Legge wanted to see if she could turn things around. She began restoring two of these historic buildings, which date from the 1700s. Soon, others followed. The owners decided to paint their houses the colors of the rainbow to help draw attention to Charleston's rich architectural history. Today, these iconic buildings are known around the world as Rainbow Row. From its earliest days, Charleston's history and many of its residents have been just as colorful as its streets. Charleston's location, surrounded by water at the mouths of the Ashley and Cooper rivers, made the city and its port particularly vulnerable to invaders from the Atlantic. In the early 1700s, the infamous Blackbeard plundered vessels anchored in Charleston Harbor, holding their cargo and passengers for ransom. Blackbeard escaped capture in South Carolina, but another equally colorful pirate named Steed Bonnet wasn't so lucky. He was brought to justice here in Charleston's Battery Park, overlooking the harbor. Steed was an unlikely buccaneer. Some called him the Gentleman Pirate. He was once a wealthy landowner in Barbados, but legend says that marital problems drove him to a life of crime. He bought an old sloop, named it Revenge, and plundered vessels up and down the East Coast before he was finally captured in the Carolinas. On December 10, 1718, Steed was brought here to White Point Gardens to face the gallows. His body was left hanging for four days as a warning to others who might have been considering a life of piracy. In later years, forts were built to protect the city from pirates and the Union Navy. Starting in 1841, 70,000 tons of New England granite and other stone were sunk in Charleston Harbor to make Fort Sumter. It was one of a series of key fortifications along the eastern seaboard. Little did anyone know, the first attack on the fort would come from Charleston itself. On April 12, 1861, Confederate forces stormed Fort Sumter and fired the first shot of the Civil War, or as it's called in the South, the War Between the States. Guarding the harbor today is the USS Yorktown, America's oldest aircraft carrier. It's docked here at Patriots Point, one of the world's largest naval and maritime museums. Commissioned in 1943, and nearly as long as three football fields, the Yorktown is the fourth US naval ship to bear that name. The previous Yorktown was lost at the Battle of Midway during World War II. This one was renamed in its honor and took part in several important Pacific theater campaigns, including the Battle of Iwo Jima and later in Vietnam, earning her a total of 16 battle stars. In December 1968, 
the carrier made history when she served as the recovery vessel for the Apollo 8 command module and her astronauts, who returned to Earth after completing NASA's first manned lunar orbital mission. On the Yorktown's deck stands an F-14A Tomcat, one of the most powerful fighters in the history of the U.S. Navy, and the E-1B Tracer. Dating from the 1950s, the E-1B is mounted with an early warning radar dome that was used by the plane's four-man crew to find and track enemy aircraft. Today, Charleston Harbor is also home to one of the busiest container cargo ports in the country, second only to New York on the eastern seaboard. The port is located inside the mouth of the Cooper River to help protect freighters from the hurricanes that batter the coast. With its wide, deep, natural harbor and high-tech crane system, this port can move cargo and ships faster than any other in the United States. But to get here, ships have to pass under this marvel of modern engineering. The Arthur Ravenel Bridge soars 570 feet above the Cooper River. Its road decks are suspended high off the water to make way for the world's largest freighters. Named after U.S. Congressman Arthur Ravenel Jr., the bridge's main span is more than 1,500 feet long, making it the longest cable-stayed bridge in North America. Building the Ravenel was a major engineering feat. Its location makes it vulnerable to a host of potential catastrophes, so engineers had to take every measure to make it fail-safe. They drilled 240 deep shafts into the riverbed for the bridge's main footings, and they encased each support tower in a one-acre rock island built with more than half a million tons of stone. These features ensure that the bridge can withstand everything from 300 mile per hour winds to magnitude 7.4 earthquakes and even impact collision with the world's largest ships. Today, the Ravenel is a crucial link in South Carolina's highway system. It offers travelers from Charleston fast access to some of the state's greatest treasures, the stunning beaches and barrier islands that line its coast. This 60-mile-long beach is called the Grand Strand and stretches from Georgetown right up to the North Carolina border. At its heart is South Carolina's most famous coastal town, Myrtle Beach. It's home to just 30,000 winter residents, but to hundreds of thousands during the summer months. They turn this sleepy winter town into a vacation mecca packing high-end hotels and golf courses and campgrounds. The pace of development on this stretch of beach has been rapid. Just over a century ago, it was largely uninhabited, and for good reason. Up until the end of the 19th century, swamps made it hard to even get to the coast, and sandy soil conditions and low crop yields made farming here difficult. To top it off, storms battered the beach. No one knew the difficulties of farming and survival here better than a family called the Withers. 
In the mid-1700s, they'd received large land grants along the coast and cleared forests to make fields. But in 1822, the gift of that property turned to tragedy when a hurricane swept the home of Robert Withers into the ocean. 18 people had sought refuge in the house from the storm, but 14 of them drowned. After Withers watched the storm carry away his wife and five children, he abandoned the land his family had held here for generations. Coastal forests reclaimed his fields, and the area remained largely uninhabited. That is, until a lumber baron arrived with a vision that would transform miles of pristine coastline into the popular towns and beaches they are today. It started after the Civil War, when a businessman named F.G. Burroughs built a lumber mill nearby. Burroughs logged the longleaf pine trees that still grow abundantly here. He started laying railroad tracks across the swamp to get his timber onto ships and transport it up the east coast. Burroughs died before the tracks were completed, but his sons finished his work. Soon, vacationers were hitching rides on the lumber trains to reach the beach. In 1901, the budding resort had its very first hotel, the Seaside Inn. Long since demolished, the inn was at the center of what's now downtown. That same year, a contest was held to give the up-and-coming town a proper name. Burroughs' widow proposed naming it after the myrtle evergreen shrub that grew along the shore. She won the contest, and the name Myrtle Beach was born. At the turn of the century, empty lots here were purportedly sold for just $25 apiece. Today, they can be worth millions, even though the beach they're on is shrinking. Studies are showing that parts of the Grand Strand lose up to eight inches of beach every year to erosion. Every few years, the state spends tens of millions of dollars to replenish the beach. Offshore, a dredge gathers sand from the bottom of the sea and sends it to a pumping station. Here, giant pumps deliver the slurry of sand to shore via steel pipes. Once it arrives, bulldozers spread the new sand and shape the beach. An amphibious tripod armed with GPS, known as the crab, allows surveyors to map the shoreline and carefully determine how much new sand is needed. The replenished beaches cause storm surges to break safely far away from shore, protecting the beachfront property. South Carolina lies in Hurricane Alley. Every June brings a new hurricane season. No one knows if and when the next big storm will hit, but when they do, the damage can be catastrophic. One hurricane system called the Great Storm of 1893 killed an estimated 2,000 people on the coast. In 1989, Hurricane Hugo was one of the most powerful recent storms to hit the state. Winds gusted up to 160 miles per hour and coastal waters surged 20 feet, causing $7 billion in damage and killing 35 people. 
so far, this state has not yet been hit by a Category 5 hurricane, the most powerful. But every hurricane season, coastal residents in Myrtle Beach and other towns up and down the coast turn their eyes to the sea and track each new weather system that moves north, just in case the next great storm is headed their way. But it's not just the coast that can be hit hard by natural disasters. Southwest of the Grand Strand lies more than a quarter of a million acres of wild, swampy land and giant cypress trees. This is the Francis Marion National Forest. In 1989, Hurricane Hugo leveled more than 30% of the forest and stripped the leaves from the cypress trees, leaving them vulnerable to forest fires. But it remains a haven for wildlife, including the Canada geese that migrate here every winter. At the end of the American Revolution, the forest was home to a famous freedom fighter known as the Swamp Fox. When British forces took control of South Carolina in 1780, in what's known as the Siege of Charleston, many in the colony continued to fight for their independence. One of them was a plantation owner and soldier named Francis Marion, who rallied a band of fighters to launch hit-and-run assaults on British regiments. The men were called Marion's Brigade. With the British hot on his trail, Marion took refuge in this swampy forest, just 30 miles north of Charleston. Unable to catch him, the British nicknamed Marion the Swamp Fox. To this day, historians debate whether Francis Marion was a terrorist or a hero in America's fight for independence. Some claim that he's the father of modern guerrilla warfare. With such colorful exploits, it's no wonder that filmmakers drew inspiration from Marion's life for the 2000 film, The Patriot, starring Mel Gibson as the Swamp Fox. With so many hurricanes slamming South Carolina's coast, building anything here can be risky, unless it's engineered for disaster. A tower rises over one of South Carolina's coastal islands. This lighthouse was built with just three sides for a reason. Its rigid triangular shape will enable it to survive winds up to 125 miles per hour and help keep ships safely offshore. But once, Sullivan's Island was the port of call for many of the world's slave ships. Historians estimate that as many as 40% of the millions of African slaves that arrived on America's shores disembarked here. Those who survived the voyage from Africa were quarantined on the island before being sold in the slave markets of Charleston. It's why the area has been called the Ellis Island of slavery. In 1989, the writer Toni Morrison noted that amazingly, there was no suitable memorial, plaque, or even wreath on the island to pay proper tribute to the hundreds of thousands of slaves who landed here.
Sullivan's Island has also played an important role in the defense of Charleston and its harbor, thanks to Fort Moultrie. When it was built, the fort's walls were constructed of logs made from freshly cut palmetto trees. During the Revolutionary War, this wood proved to be surprisingly resilient against cannon shot and helped colonial forces repel a British naval siege. It's why the palmetto tree eventually became the state symbol. It appears on the South Carolina flag. South Carolina has 187 miles of coastline, but that number can be deceptive. Behind the state's pristine beaches and barrier islands lie nearly 3,000 miles of shoreline. Much of it lies here in one of the country's greatest waterways, the mouth of the Santee River. It's the largest delta on the eastern seaboard, mile after mile of twisting inlets and salt marshes, a haven for migrating birds. By 1690, one of the world's most desired commodities was produced here on the coast, a variety of rice called Carolina gold. Slaves worked and shaped these marshes to create what were some of the largest rice plantations on earth. Growing rice here was backbreaking work. Slaves cut ditches and built embankments to control the salinity of the water while trying to avoid alligators and poisonous snakes. Rice became South Carolina's biggest commodity. Georgetown County alone once produced close to half of all the rice grown in the U.S. and at one point exported more rice than any other port in the world. It's been said that Carolina gold was once the preferred rice of the emperor of China. The end of slavery drove most of these coastal plantations out of business, but a few old structures remain in the swamp, like this house, built on stilts to protect residents from flooding and storms, a common practice to this day. Most of South Carolina's coastal rice plantations are gone. Many other plantation houses inland remain. The first of these estates were built when British lords awarded large tracts of land here to English settlers in order to farm rice, cotton, and other cash crops. Powered by slave labor, the output of these once giant farms was astounding. By the dawn of the American Revolution, Plantations here had already produced a million pounds of the plant indigo, from which was produced a distinctive blue dye. Indigo exports helped make South Carolina Britain's wealthiest colony. During the first years of the colony, most English settlers came from Barbados. They were young, ambitious farmers, eager to expand their opportunities. Among these early settlers were Thomas and Anne Drayton. Arriving from Barbados in 1679, they built Magnolia Plantation. But it was one of the Drayton's sons who established the family's greatest legacy. As the third son, John Drayton knew he wouldn't inherit his family's land. So, in 1738, the 23-year-old purchased 350 acres of his own along the Ashley River. 
the river would provide a transportation network to carry his crops to the ports. He then set about building himself a new house on a grand scale. During the Civil War, Union soldiers torched many of the plantation houses along the Ashley River. Amazingly, Drayton Hall was one of only three that survived. Why it did is a mystery that has long puzzled historians. Some say that General Sherman spared the estate because he was in love with one of the Drayton women. Another theory is that the slaves working on the plantation were ordered to tell Union troops that the house was a smallpox hospital and should be spared. Today, Drayton Hall is considered the oldest and most splendid example of Georgian Palladian architecture in the United States. Luckily, it's not just the grand houses of plantation owners that have survived. On the nearby Boone Plantation, small slave cabins still stand on what's known as Slave Street. It was common at the time for slave cabins to be built in front of a plantation mansion as a public display of their prosperity. These historic sites provide stunning glimpses of the antebellum period and a chance to understand what life was like for enslaved Africans in South Carolina. As plantation profits grew, so too did the estates of their owners. The vast landscape gardens of Middleton Place are thought to be the oldest in the U.S. They were designed and planted so that there would be something in bloom every day of the year. Middleton Place was also the site of a farming experiment. In 1846, the owners imported water buffalo from Constantinople to see if, with their wide hooves and sturdy legs, they could outperform horses in tilling rice fields. But during the Civil War, Union troops burned the main house and slaughtered some of the animals for food. Many of the buffalo that were spared ultimately ended up in New York's Central Park Zoo. Today, Middleton Place is a National Historic Landmark. Its gardens were open to the public in the 1920s. The Garden Club of America called them the most interesting and important gardens in the United States. From the air, it's easy to see why. Moving inland from South Carolina's coastline, a rolling landscape beckons. This is North America's largest intact area of old-growth floodplain forest. This fertile region once belonged to a Native American tribe called the Congaree. Periodically, nearby rivers flood the forest, supplying it with nutrients and sediment that create a rich ecosystem that's home to a wide variety of fish, reptiles, and insects. When European settlers arrived here, they brought smallpox, which nearly wiped out the Congaree. The few members of the tribe that remained were either imprisoned or killed by the colonists. There are no Congaree left today, but this vast stretch of their ancient land remains practically untouched. The Congaree National Park covers 27,000 acres and is home to nearly 100 species of trees and a canopy that rises higher than the Amazon rainforest. The dampness here 
is also what's protected it from people. In the early 20th century, a single logging company bought up nearly all this land. But the trees were so wet, they wouldn't even float down river. And the company quickly abandoned their operations here, leaving the Congarese floodplain forests intact. 20 miles to the northwest, the floodplain ends, just before reaching Columbia, the capital of South Carolina. At the center of town lies one of the most notable buildings in the country, the South Carolina State House. Its most unique feature is its dome, covered with 44,000 pounds of copper. But what's even more remarkable is that this State House is even standing. Construction of a new State House began in 1851. But the first structure had to be torn down because of major structural flaws. Major John Nearnsey, a Vienna-born railway engineer, took over the project. But his structure was threatened by war. On February 17, 1865, General William Tecumseh Sherman and his Union troops swept into Columbia. Fueled by abandoned barrels of Confederate whiskey, the disorderly soldiers pillaged and set fire to the city. A total of 84 blocks burned in a single night. Incredibly, the new State House, already under construction, survived the attack. But the fires did destroy all of the building's architectural plans. And with the state's coffers empty after the Civil War, the building wasn't completed until 1903. Its Corinthian columns are among the largest in the world. Each is carved from a single massive hunk of blue granite that slaves pulled from a quarry just south of the city. For nearly four decades, the Confederate flag flew atop the State House dome. It was raised in 1962 to mark the sacrifices of white South Carolinians in the Civil War. But many saw it as a symbol of the state's rebellion to the growing civil rights movement. In 2000, nearly 50,000 protesters marched up Main Street to the State House steps and demanded that the flag be lowered. Later that year, it was finally removed, making South Carolina the last state to officially fly the Confederate flag. But the Confederate spirit still cooks up controversy in Columbia. The same day that the rebel flag was removed from the State House, the owner of a popular barbecue chain raised Confederate flags over his nine local restaurants. Barbecue is always a contentious subject in the Carolinas. The question of mustard versus tomato-based sauces has been known to start duels. But the battle waged by the owner of Maurice's Piggy Park is a racial one. Maurice openly defends the former practice of slavery in the state. In protest, major store chains throughout the South have pulled all the company's barbecue products from their shelves. Heading north lies South Carolina's backcountry. These forests were once home to the Cherokee Trail, a key Native American trade route that once stretched from Charleston all the way to Tennessee. European settlers used the trail to expand west and trade their weapons, rum, and gunpowder for pelts. 
1748 alone, the skins of 160,000 deer were exported from South Carolina to Europe to make pants, gloves, and hats. Deer skin was South Carolina's biggest commodity until the arrival of rice cultivation. By 1775, a settlement with 12 dwellings and a courthouse was established on the Cherokee Trail near a plentiful spring. It was named 96 from the mistaken belief that it lay 96 miles away from the Cherokee capital, Kiwi. The village has since been reconstructed along with a stockade fort built in 1781 to protect the spring. Nearby, an odd form appears on the ground below. Points of a star pushing up from the earth. These are the remains of Star Fort. British loyalists built the fort here in 1780 with slave labor to defend themselves against rebel forces. The fort was designed with eight points to help the loyalists better see their enemy and fend off the attack. In 1781, 1,000 patriots attacked the fort. The ensuing battle became the longest siege of the American Revolution. Inside the fort lie the remains of a well that British forces dug hoping to sustain themselves throughout the long siege, but they never reached water. Heading towards the northwest boundary of the state, the Blue Ridge Mountains beckon. This used to be Cherokee country. A legend of the tribe says that a giant spirit used to sit on one of these mountains and eat from the top of another. Table Rock, as it's called, is located in Table Rock State Park, a protected wilderness that covers more than 3,000 acres. It's also home to Pinnacle Mountain. At more than 3,400 feet, it's the highest peak that's entirely within the state of South Carolina. East of the Blue Ridge Mountains lies Gaffney. It was once a thriving textile mill center. Today, it's a sleepy town, but one with enormous pride. Enough to erect a four-story, one million gallon water tank to celebrate it. Locals call it the Peachoid. Peaches were originally brought to America by Spanish explorers in the 1500s. And when English colonists arrived 100 years later, they found Native Americans cultivating the fruit, leading the settlers to believe that peaches were actually native to South Carolina. Built in 1981, the water tower was designed as a giant peach to let the world know that South Carolina produces more peaches than the so-called peach state, Georgia. In fact, South Carolina now officially calls itself the tastier peach state. Another small upstate South Carolina town is home to a unique American success story. As in Gaffney, textile mills thrived in the town of Greer, but by the 1970s, competition from Asia sent the region into decline. Then, in the early 1990s, BMW opened its first and only plant in the United States, 
right here in the small town of Greer. This state-of-the-art factory covers 4 million square feet, an area the size of nearly 70 football fields. Inside, 7,000 workers produce about 600 vehicles every day, one out of every six that the company makes. After they roll off the assembly line, these luxury cars are shipped across the U.S. and from the Port of Charleston into 130 markets worldwide. Today, many call the region around Greer the Detroit of the South. Traveling south of Greer is a trip back in time to a place where pioneers settled their differences with blood. Today, Edgefield is by all appearances peaceful and quaint. But in the early 19th century, this town and the surrounding county had one of the highest murder rates in the country. Local legend says that blood has been spilled over every square foot of this town center. Accused criminals were tried here at the Edgefield Courthouse. One of the most colorful trials of the day was that of a young beauty named Becky Cotton. She had murdered her first husband with a large needle, poisoned her second, and put an ax through the skull of her third. But surprisingly, she was acquitted on all charges. Some say she used her beauty to win over the jury. And perhaps they're right. Becky Cotton went on to marry one of the jurymen. But before she could kill him, her own brother murdered her first. And he did it right on the Edgefield Courthouse steps. Today, Edgefield County is better remembered as the birthplace of 10 South Carolina governors, five lieutenant governors, and a number of state senators, including the oldest and longest one to serve in the state's history, Strom Thurmond. West of Edgefield, these peaceful waters have been named in Thurmond's honor. Strom Thurmond Lake covers 71,000 acres and is surrounded by a 1,200-mile shoreline. It's one of the largest inland bodies of water in the south. And while it may not look like it, the lake is entirely man-made. It was created when the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers built the Strom Thurmond Dam on the Savannah River in order to stop flooding in communities downstream and to provide power for the state. The Savannah River stretches over 300 miles from the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains all the way to the Atlantic. The river divides South Carolina from Georgia to the south. Lying in the midst of this seemingly pristine wilderness is a vast, once top-secret industrial complex that covers 300 square miles. The Savannah River site was built by the U.S. Department of Energy in the 1950s. For decades, up to five giant reactors produced 40% of the plutonium used to build the nation's nuclear weapons. Today, the reactors and the site's other processing plants have been shut down. They were too old to operate without expensive repairs. And the site is now contaminated with tens of millions of gallons of radioactive waste. The plan is to entomb the old reactors and seal off the waste. But that's expected to take a vast amount of cement, enough to fill four Home Depot stores right up to their roofs. 
60 miles up the coast from the mouth of the savannah is Wadmala Island, home to a unique agricultural experiment. In the late 19th century, the American Department of Agriculture was searching for new, financially viable crops. Until then, almost all of America's tea came from Asia. They discovered that South Carolina's humid climate and sandy soil could be perfect for growing high-quality tea. But the labor cost of picking the tea leaves in South Carolina was eight times more expensive than it was in China or India. And after just four years, the venture was shut down. However, another tea plantation was founded nearby in 1888, producing award-winning teas until its owner's death in 1915. Then, the tea plants grew wild until they were transplanted and cultivated by the Lipton Tea Company in 1963. Fearing the instability of the third world countries that produced so much of its tea, Lipton wanted to experiment with creating its own working tea farm. The company eventually sold the venture, but today the tea plantation remains in operation as the country's only commercial tea garden. The American classic brand of tea that it produces is the official tea of the White House. Southwest is another barrier island that once produced the finest cotton in the world. Hilton Head Island covers more than 40 square miles and is one of the largest barrier islands on the coast. It's had many inhabitants over the centuries, including Native Americans and Spanish explorers. But it wasn't until the British cotton planters arrived here around 1800 that the island developed into an economic powerhouse. By the start of the Civil War, more than 20 plantations had sprung up, including the first in America to grow extra-long staple cotton, better known as Egyptian cotton. Cotton may no longer be king here, but the island is still an economic powerhouse. Every year, tourists pump roughly $1.5 billion into Hilton Head's economy. Just north of Hilton Head lies one of the toughest places on Earth. Paris Island has been home to the U.S. Marine Corps since 1891. It's here where newly enlisted recruits are turned into Marines in just 13 weeks. Today, drill instructors train an estimated 19,000 men and women at Paris Island each year. The humorist Art Buckwald a former Marine who got his training at Paris Island described his experience there as a very painful one, which is exactly how the Marines intended it to be. Its purpose, he said, was to break you down and then rebuild you up into a soldier who will never question an order, who will always worry about their buddy, and who someday will walk as tall as John Wayne. In March 1971, Joe Frazier became a household name around the world when he knocked down Muhammad Ali in round 15 at Madison Square Garden. Frazier was born here in Beaufort, South Carolina's second oldest town. Its quaint historic streets and houses have made this town an ideal movie set. Films like Forrest Gump, The Big Chill, and Prince of Tides were all shot here. Celebrities often stay at the Red House Inn on Craven Street, a classic 1820 plantation house turned luxury hotel. 
during the Civil War, Buford was more fortunate than many of its neighboring towns. Wherever they went, northern troops left a path of destruction. But the army spared Buford, using it instead as a Union headquarters. As a result, many of the city's historic antebellum buildings have been preserved. From its barrier islands, along its pristine beaches, and inland across its giant floodplain forest. South Carolina is as much defined by its wild spaces as it is by the history woven into its earth. To see South Carolina by air is a chance to explore the true spirit of the South, from the elegant streets of Charleston to the rough frontier villages of early pioneers, to the giant plantations that built some of America's biggest fortunes, and the stories of those who were brought unwillingly to its shores. Ariel, South Carolina, travels across America's smallest southern state, whose stories are as big as the nation itself.